A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Just before you listen to this admittedly wonderful podcast, I want to tell you how you can get hold of the matchday programme for the Champions League final, even if you don't go to Madrid. It's a beautiful document, and in recent years, it's been one of the highlights of my season to contribute to this programme. In the recent past, I've written about Celtic on their way to the Champions League final in 1967 against Inter Milan how they sallied off into the Estoril woods to find a golf, a Scottish golf professional so they could watch England versus Spain live in the TV and how Celtic got lost on the way to the Lisbon final the following day, how Brian Clough insisted on having a crate of beer on the way to the Olympic Stadium in Munich for the final in 1979. I've written about choosing the best goal from all the European Cup finals and Champions League final. I went with Mandzukic, by the way, from Cardiff, and I'll argue with anybody who disagrees. I've written about the pre-match press conference, the art of starting the game 24 hours early. And in this season's issue, I've written about the thrills and spills, the most extraordinary semi-finals this competition, in either of its forms, probably has ever seen. It's filled with beautiful art, wonderful spread pictures, great writers, and it's a memento for all time. And you can still order a copy of the Champions League final programme or, and, the Europa League final match programme from european-knights.com. We do try to look after you. Hello everybody, for Backpage, my name is Neil White and this is the big interview with Graham Hunter who is on the line from Barcelona to talk with me about Saturday's Copa del Rey final which finished Valencia 2, Barcelona 1. I'm also on a concrete bench looking up at the blue sky over Barcelona and that helicopter you can hear and, and will continue to hear isn't anything to do with the sort of end scenes of um, Goodfellas and they're not coming to get me. But um, it's where I choose to record this part of our lovely conversation. Graham Hunter is down the line from Barcelona and slow cooking a tomato <laughs> sauce. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you about the thinly sliced garlic, but, you know. Using the razor blade. Um, listen, everybody, I hope you all listened to the preview show that Martin and Graham recorded um, that was out just before the final. Uh, Graham focused a lot on Valencia in that podcast and especially their coach Marcelino. The turnaround in this season, the factors behind the turnaround in that season, um, what a change for them up top. 
So that was great. And the way the final went, I think it gave us lots of great background. But I want to kind of drag you back first, Graham, and say that there's a nice symmetry to this chat because my season, 2018-19, began with you going to... We did. We started off... Um, we, bloody hell. I mean, it's, it's, it's kicked me in the guts that. We started off uh, watching the poor, now deceased owner of Leicester taking off um, from... The, the ground and um, we'd watched Valencia Leicester, we'd been treated wonderfully by Leicester and Valencia had introduced us to Dear Cabby and, and at that stage I remember we were up in the hospitality box and, and looking at this glorious um, mechanism taking off into the sky and it's a hell of a thing to think back now to, to the tragedy that struck that club um, and, and the sadness that imbued um, Leicester every time you know, living abroad, I then saw it on the on the television after having been to that wonderfully welcoming city for a, what was a cracking game of football. And you and I went to watch it, and one, one I seem to remember, um, we were pretty thrilled by the already clear indications that James Madison was easily going to make the move up from Norwich. It, it's it's a moving class down from Tawdry and the Mighty Dandies, obviously. And um, we saw uh, that day for Valencia. I mean, listen, you were you were billing and cooing over Parejo that day, weren't you? Yes, I was about to go back there. <laughs> I still love him. Even more so now, right? Yes. I, I, he was magnificent in that preseason friendly. He's magnificent kind of every time I see him. Um, but he performed uh, a different role um, in, in this game. He seemed to be in Messi's face a fair amount. Well, I... I think one of the interesting things about Parejo is that, and we've talked about this over and over again, at this level for this club, he's he's kind of whatever you need him to be in that he'll pick up the ball outside the, the penalty area. He'll offer for defenders who are told not to lump it when there isn't a runner. And there's Parejo. And he seems to have, you know, triplet brothers because he'll be available again in midfield and... He'll run onto the ball and, and finish, and he's done that throughout the season. Um, one of his record goal-scoring totals. And I thought on Saturday night, well, because Messi sort of dropped so deep and, and played really strongly in the first half at a, at a lesser pace, and I don't mean the fact that he's prone to walking or assessing the game, there, there was a lack of urgency and intensity, I thought, about Barcelona, irrespective of the way they conceded their two goals. And... It's really struck me that the instant Valencia involved Parejo in a constructive move of knocking the ball around, Barcelona couldn't keep up and the first goal was conceded. So while I definitely agree with you that, that Parejo is a guy who can you know, make life hard for a deep-lying Messi who likes to have a bit of space to pick the ball up or who likes to have... Um, players around him of the opposition team who will be a little bit careless and let possession bounce off them. Well, Brecco doesn't really do that. And I think that while occasionally he's understated, it, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be sort of, uh, what do you call it, hipster and, and say he's a connoisseur's taste. But I think that there are a lot of people who watch Premier League football who like their midfielders to be a good deal more urgent and, and more patently piston-pumping as they get around the turf and, and Parejo is all built on intelligence and positioning and technique and bravery and vision always always 
always there for his teammates, showing and saying, I'll take it. And, and we're in the little fine details, microscopic details. I, I don't know if the socios agree or appreciate or, or violently disagree, but when in, when in that point, in that spell in the game that you were talking about, before Parejo went off injured and before um, Messi did his level best to, to rest this cup final back into Barcelona's hands, the thing that really stood out was he just that razor's edge of difference whenever the ball about you know 9, 10, 11, 12 minutes into the game when Valencia had been lying very deep and, and beginning to get a little bit corralled even though Barcelona weren't doing very special things they were high up the pitch and Valencia looked a little bit stuck in there three, four times in the space of five, six minutes the ball came to Parejo and he already knew what to do. And it was one touch, two touch, one touch, one touch, two touch. The speed of movement of the ball, when it's accurate, makes a gigantic amount of difference to what space you occupy, how, um, how much time you've got to look for that next pass. When a receiver gets it really quickly, really accurately, and their marker isn't quite there, it's a chain reaction. It goes one thing after the other, domino theory. And um, Parejo was the Domino's man. He, um, I mean, he's been, he's been there now eight years. This is his first trophy. Looking at the, their return to the Mestalla, um, you know, and the celebrations that happened there, it's like fantastic for this club who themselves like ended an 11-year uh, trophy drought. But, but in particular, the this, this, this skipper. Well, that's right. And without, without repeating what we talked about on Friday, I think it's worth emphasising, you know, that, that Parejo, when Marcelino arrived, Parejo did a big interview with one of the quality papers in Spain where he said, I was a little bit afraid to go outdoors. He didn't say it in the way that Ander Gomez, who's now at Everton, said about Barcelona, where he was ashamed to go out, outdoors and that he had something verging between anxiety or depression about the, I'm going to say exigency, but that's a Spanish word that I can't find the British word for. Um, his, his, the, the demands he placed upon himself, he was so shamed, and Gomez, about how he was letting himself down that he began to imagine everybody was talking about. Well, everybody was talking about Parejo. He'd been, without being loutishly drunk, he'd been pictured in a club, um, nightclub late on, drinking, but actually been drunk. I mean, goaded by somebody with a, uh, he didn't know, had a video phone in her hands, been goaded saying something a little bit derogatory about the previous coach. And um, there, there was there was no question that under Nuno Espirito Santo, Parejo was, um, how would I put it? He, he was enjoying a lot less the training ground atmosphere, the brand of training, the, the relationship he had with the coach. And, uh, you know, that, that's a footballer's lot. You, you, there's no way you have a career that starts at Real Madrid and goes to QPR, then Hetafe and Valencia, and you play from, you know, you play professionally from the age of 18 and, and until you're 30 now, and everything is sweetness and light. Just just doesn't happen to anybody. Um, but but the, the way in which... Marcelino came in and just tapped him on the shoulder and said, listen, don't go. Parejo was about to go, he and his wife were like, it's not that we don't feel safe in this city, but it's like we get heckled in the street. Um, people have lost faith. I'm not enjoying life anymore. This needs to change. I love my football and therefore the, the place that I 
you know, I practice my football needs to be far more enjoyable than this. And, you know, that's how close it was. It was a razor thin edge between him being a player of another club. And I think it's worth noting in this podcast that Ernesto Valverde asked uh, last summer, asked Barcelona at St. Parejo. And uh, in fact, yeah, I was going to say, was it last summer or the summer before? But he was a specific petition from Valverde to say, I know the style of football at Barcelona demand and, and the, the, the ethos of the, of the Cruyff-style Barcelona, Guardiola-style Barcelona, and, and there's, a, there's a specific player who embodies that. So it must have been actually summer number one, I, I apologise, because they brought him Coutinho instead the, the, the following Christmas. So when you talk about Parejo, I, I, I think it's not just now the storyteller's urge to say, ah, oh, look, he came back from the brink of disaster to the cup final. I agree with you that he's put eight good years in there. He's taken them um, into Europe. He, he played, I won't renege because I was right. It was true. But, you know, in the first two and a half months of the season, I wrote very critically about Parejo because if anybody wants to go back and look at his performance against Juventus at home in the Champions League, which was crucial to win, where Ronaldo gets sent off, um, Parejo gives away a penalty knowing uh, that Juventus is right back that day, is is a former Valencia player, Cancelo, who Parejo had played against umpteen times in training and he's trying to clear the ball and he knows Cancelo's quick and he, he... he misjudges what Cancelo's about to do in, in I mean, I was, calamitous is, is only close to it, inexplicable manner. Gives away the penalty, um, Juventus score, Parejo is narky throughout the game. They win a late penalty, even at 2-0 they win a late penalty, you never know what happens if he puts it in, he misses it. I'd noticed him in a, in a game at, at Mestalla dabbling away at a fellow, an opposition midfielder whereby he was very lucky not to be sent off the following week away to Villarreal and they'll draw when Valencia couldn't score, couldn't win. He does, um, he does get sent off. He, he was, you know, there was a scorpion in his underpants and I don't know why, but there was a problem and, and he seemed to be reacting to it in a, in, in a way which was letting down the previous year he had, which was magnificent under... Um, under Marcelino, Parejo looked to me like an absolute stick-on Spain player, an archetypical Spain player. The last coach ignored him. This coach has um, has, um, has brought him in. I don't know if his injury gets cleared soon enough to go to the Faroe Islands or to play against Sweden. Simply being happy for a guy who's got his kids on the pitch and his wife with him, and he's, he, he was crying basically non-stop from the time he went off to when the final whistle went to when he was interviewed on television afterwards. It's nice to see somebody being overcome with emotion for the right reasons. But I think it's I think it's slightly bigger there. At a time when Spanish football, Spanish club football, has for the first time in I don't know how many years uh, not won a European trophy, which would probably date back to, I guess, 2013 maybe. Um... And, and when Barcelona, again, have been blown away because they're not as, as intense or super fit as a Liverpool. Or, um, and, and when Barcelona, neither Barcelona nor Real Madrid, nor indeed Spain, retain the ball and, and, and keep it and move opposition about as we've become used to over the last 
10 or so, 10, 11, 12 years. Parejo stands as a testimony to what it, what it should be like and what it used to be like. And, and I, um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to see him reaping the rewards for, for playing the way he does. By no means a one-man show, though, um, on Saturday. There, was, there were fantastic performances from Valencia all over the pitch. Jauma, who the goalkeeper, who, who kind of typically for, for Spanish and European football only tends to play in the cup competition, made a ton of really, you know, like A-minus, B-plus saves um, to, to kind of keep Valencia ahead. And then at the top, super sharp. The marquee signing from the summer, Kevin Gamero, scores the first and Rodrigo the second, a guy who we spoke a lot, Graham, about during the World Cup when we are doing that daily show. Well, it's, it's funny, you talked about bookends when we, you and I started at um, Leicester 1-1 Valencia and, and the season finishes with Valencia winning the cup. At least the, the Spanish domestic season does. Um, you know, the bookends are Rodrigo's brilliant, brilliant goal outstanding goal on the first day of the season um, against Atleti and and then an utterly bewildering dearth of goals where yeah there were matches when Rodrigo lost confidence or maybe did the wrong thing and I won't repeat what I said but I you know for me didn't listen on Friday Saturday the the point at which a lot of partnership building time was wasted by playing Batshuayi who had no idea how to link with Rodrigo, and, and therefore it took longer for the developing understanding with Mina to keep growing and for Gamero and Rodrigo to understand each other. And when that did click after Christmas, um, okay, it still took Rodrigo a little while to find the goals, but there was a match in the middle of the Champions League against the Swiss opposition when Mina and Rodrigo really clicked. And you thought, yeah, okay, this guy, Rodrigo isn't, hasn't been a one-season wonder. Um, this is going to come. His, his, you know, Neil, Rodrigo's unbelievable willingness, A, to keep making the runs, completely undaunted by his Frank Spencer finishing, and then his, his unerring idea that if he's in the right position, he must finish, and if he's got somebody in a better position, he must pass. That, that's why he's not an out-and-out out number nine, because, you know, true dyed-in-the-wool number nine centre-forwards don't think like that. He's in the Benzema mould. He's a very good footballer, very good athlete. So, yeah, um, the look of sheer joy on his face um, when that... when that and The ball in. The ball in is absolutely sensational, I would say. Um, Soler, right? Yeah, which, which again, I'm pleased about because Soler is a 10. Um, he's been at the club since he was eight. He, he, if, he, if he eventually is played in a 4-2-3-1 formation and he's the middle of the three behind the one striker, then Soler will, will, will immediately, I think, show himself to be European class and there'll be a mega market for him and so on. He's, he's a diamond of a player who... He copes with being asked to play wide in a four of a four four two because, you know, across his two years at Valencia, Marcelino I think has only twice played three five two and, and no other formations apart from four four two. During a match, you know, it might morph into four five one, but the, the skeleton is always four four two, and therefore Soler really, apart from a handful of occasions when literally Coquelin and Condogbia are injured and Vass isn't playing in next to Pareco. In fact, it probably needs three central midfielders to be injured before Soler is even tried in central midfield. And even then, 
that's an adapted position because he is a true number 10. And, you know, he's been ripping up records and making people swoon at Valencia since the kid was eight or nine. And therefore, to, to see him using that, um, you know, that, his, his, that bastardized position for him where he really is just told, you know, do your shift. And, and getting past Alba and rocketing that ball in, the ball's brilliant. It still needs a lot of work. I don't, know, I don't know what you thought, but I thought Rodrigo still had to react really well. And I've seen a ball of that pace rocket off somebody as if they've got a triangular head. And I thought Rodrigo's poise was brilliant in that minute. Yeah, it's an old-fashioned number nine run to, to, to decide to go to the keeper, basically, in, instead of kind of holding back. It is, I agree with you, but, he, but he, you know what he shows? I think he shows that he trusts Soler's delivery. He knows that that channel between the keeper, who is, remember, a reserve keeper, who hasn't played a lot. I, I do adore Sillison, but, you know, these haven't been his best weeks. He's been, you know, absent for a very long time because, the, you know, the Copa semi-final was a chunk of time ago, and therefore... You know, I think that while it absolutely was an old-fashioned centre-forwards run, he, he's he's judged two things that, you know, there may be a little bit of hesitation on Sillison's part. And secondly, he just knows that Solera is brilliant enough to ping that ball at the right height, at the right pace, into the channel between the defenders and, and Sillison. And, and, you know, good on him for guessing right and trusting. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I want to talk more about the sort of psychological scars and that they've picked up in the latter stage of, of this season. I mean, a lot's been written and said by Barcelona players, amongst other people, um, about the sort of lineage of this defeat coming from the second leg of the Champions League game against Liverpool. Do you buy into that? Do you think that the, the end of their season has been defined by that defeat? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely do, because it, it, when they talk about it in the two, you are referring to are PK and Messi. And, and there, are, there are few you'd rather listen to when, you, when they're not doing something that's corporate or commercial. And when they're speaking from the heart, you, you're listening to two of the leaders two of those who are the most stern about winning all the time and who what would you call it sting the most when they lose so when PK says that it was a brutal experience at Anfield when he admits that that they were lacking once you once you listen closely to Messi and PK saying it was our fault and when you listen to them talking about not being able to react and the degree to which Rome last year when they were 4-1 up from a match, it was so similar. And the only remedy is change. Because, yes, I do believe them. I do believe that there's scars. And I do. when you hear Piquet 
And I, I, I don't have the word power to describe to people what a brutal competitor he is. And when he talks about memories of Rome, Rome haunting him on that night in Anfield, that's not a, a throwaway line. That, that, you know, that's the psychiatrist here, and that cuts right to the core. And, and once you've got something that you need to excise, you know, it's, it's tautological to say anything else. Excise it. There needs, to be, there needs to be a cutting away at people who are permascarred in that squad. Now, there are other arguments, completely separate but parallel arguments, about what brand of football do you want? And Xavi's talking about, you know, not until they, they learn to dominate possession and control a game. Well, that's true. That is true. But it's a, it's a, it's a separate, albeit concurrent, debate. There are people in that squad now um, who I think, or, or at least it, enough of them have suffered that enough times that some of those simply need to be sacrificed. Whether you can say on a scale of one to ten, he is more or less traumatised than him, change is just, it's, it's, it's not just necessary, it's inevitable. Uh, it's, listen, it's fascinating to hear you say that. And the fact that you've got individuals there who might still have success in the rest of their career, but together as part of that collective, it gives them weakness. You've seen FC Barcelona go through these moments. Are you talking about coach and what, three, four, five senior players? How do you think it's going to unfold? Who makes the decision? You make a point because, I, you know, I used an analogy about the, you know, the human body and, and about excisions and... If you've got a doctor who diagnoses what's wrong with you, but your surgeon's drunk, then you're still screwed. Um, or if he's thinking about the golf or his mistress. And, and, and the long and short is that, you know, Bartomeu as president has done some good things. Appointing Valverde was a good choice. I, I think that's unquestionable. I think that, um, or to my taste, Bringing Eric Abidal into the fold is a good idea. I think that um, renewing Messi, uh, renewing relationships, or actually building relationships with the Cruyff family. There are a number of things where we can say that Bartomeu's done good things. But um, Pep Segura being appointed as, as overall head of technical decision making at, at Barcelona is, is wrong. Um, he holds a template in his mind which is utterly alien to the, the Barcelona of the last, well, since Rijkaard took over, uh, which goes back to uh, 2003. You know, with, with, you know, with bumps in between when Luis Enrique's style was a little bit more vertical, but, you know, it, it, it built itself around Xavi and Iniesta all the same. So I don't regard it as, as different, just a variant. And Tata Martino, well, that was a one-season... Um, experiment, but but broadly, Pep Segura has just got no relationship, in my view, with um, with the way in which Barcelona needed to develop from where they were at. That's the crucial thing. So, if, if Barcelona do want to prepare themselves for the return of Xavi in 2021, which is the right thing to do, it's the John Stuart Milne thing to do, um, the utilitarian idea. Then I, I don't feel that Pep Scora should be staying or making the decisions. Valverde is a, is a heated subject and we could spend all day on it, so let's, let's avoid that prospect by simply saying Valverde has been a brilliant player manager. 
He's resolved problems. He's kept egos in check. If people condemn him out of hand for what he's achieved, then they're buffoons. I don't know if Valverde needs to go or not, although the, the criteria upon which I would judge, Neil, would be if, if it's... Um, if there's not going to be a great deal of change because, other than what's been booked already, which is Griezmann and uh, Frankie de Jong, then it's feasible that Valverde stays. If Bartomeu, which is not his way, is going to say, right, I, I actually now understand that th- this club needs to reorientate itself to playing in, in a possession position way, then Valverde is not that coach. So uh, I think anybody just says Valverde out is, is not engaged in any kind of, you know, it's, it's more like, um, what, was it, what, who, who, what was the programme with Dusty Bin in it? You know, the 3-2-1 people are saying Valverde out and the University Challenge people are saying, well, let's see what the club wants to achieve over the summer and next season before we decide upon the, the coach. But I think there can be major investments by a club which is running out of money at right back, at left back to challenge Jordi Alba. Sillison leaves, so there must be a keeper challenging Ter Stegen. And there is now an, a, a serious debate about how often and in what against what rival Busquets must be an automatic starter because physically and athletically there's been a gigantic change in him. And it's patently obvious that if they get Griezmann, then... It's about accommodating Dembele, Griezmann, Messi and Suarez. And, and I think they do get him because I think that deal is, is, is set up. The excising of those who've suffered trauma can neatly uh, conjoin with the, the, the tactical and sporting needs of, of this, you know, the best 11 that you get out of Barcelona's. And, and to be quite frank, you know, amidst all of that, uh, cauterizing, they need to find a market for Coutinho because he has not fitted and at this stage there are certain players in certain circumstances where you say he merits more time this can still work and in my judgment that is not the case for Coutinho The the, the point that you started with was about the decision making tree and I wonder if there's the appetite for that volume of change I don't know if there's the I don't know if there's the skill, because you know the um, the amount that they've the amount that they've spent on um, Dembele, Coutinho, um, renewing Messi, renewing Busquets, renewing Ter Stegen, um, the amount that they will spend on not only De Jong and Griezmann. But I think that they're far closer to getting De Ligt than, than many in the media are saying. I think De Ligt is a 70-30 shot to come to Football Club Barcelona and I don't think really there's been anything other than a game played with um, Minarella about the, the, the Manchester United interest in order to make Barcelona feel that there's a market and pay more. And, and so I don't know exactly how that will finish, but on balance I think it's a 70-30 shot that De Ligt comes to Barcelona. That's unbelievable money they have to spend given that their backs are all already against the wall financially. And therefore, the skill that you need to be able to not only sell, but sell looking at the buyer straight in the eyes and pretend it's not a buyer's market. <laughs> that takes a lot of wit, a lot of cojones, a lot of favours, because everybody's going, I will take you know, Coutinho off your hands for 50 million. And you're like, whoa, whoa that's a 70 million, 70 million loss. You're like, suck it up, baby. 
Um, okay, let's park Barcelona and finish back with Valencia. I mean, we're talking about Barcelona's summer being possibly one of change turmoil, certainly self-reflection. Does this match completely change uh, Valencia's summer? Or, or let's say, does the last month of the of the season change their summer? I think you sort of steered your way neatly into the right question there because... Thank you. Copa del Rey, um, I think, sh- should be cathartic. There can be an un- unleashing of, we can do it, that, that, God, I love lifting silverware and I, I want it again, yeah, that can happen. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Their debt is at or around 500 million euros. And although it's it's shared out between, um, you know, local institutions and debt that Peter Lim incurred in order to, to buy the club, um, it's, it's a heavy burden, Neil. They've begun work again on the new uh, Mastaya. And therefore, they, their position remains really precarious. And the thing that made them special over these last two years was as soon as Matteo Aleman, who um, is, the, is, the, is the chief organising force at that club, came in and, and dumped Kiki Setien, who was about to be the manager, and appointed Marcelino, their, their, their signing has been, you know, not without error, but really good. To be able to persuade Neto to come and sign, to be able to persuade Condogbia to come on loan and then sign, to be able to take Geddes on loan, calculating that this was a player who wanted to play more, but also that Paris Saint-Germain would probably sell him because of FFP. These have been masterstrokes. These have been so clever. And Marcino revitalising um, Danny Parejo, the revitalising applies to Rodrigo, applies to Gaia, all, and the promotion of Ferran and the promotion of Soler. All of these things point Marcelino as, as probably Spain's coach of the year the last two years, I think. No harm to Zidane in his Champions League, but pound for pound, I think the last two years have made Marcelino coach of the year each time. Bordelas is in, the, in there this year for sure, but ultimately when, when you look at um, Marcelino winning the cup and getting fourth position pound for pound that's where I go and when I've been talking to people who know him and have worked with him at a variety of different clubs there is a common feeling that right now across the globe he's, he's the number two most talented coach of Spanish origin after Pep Guardiola and, and, and by that I mean coach I think he's had to learn in man management terms so I'll come back to your question I apologise their wits are, are, are going to be at the forefront. If, if you ask about the Copa del Rey unleashing something special, I do agree that you know that '99 Cup win unleashed a winning generation at the Mestalla and, and made everybody unified behind. It's not just we want to knock over the big boys; we want to win. I, I don't think they're title winners. Um, but there's really delicate things to come up Barcelona and Real Madrid really, and at Atleti. So if Valencia, if I were sitting in a room right now with Marcelino and Aleman and Marcelino's um, football director, who, who is <laughs> somebody with whom he shares an agent, so there's a nice cosy relationship there, I'd be sitting in that room saying, yeah, our objective is to win the title. That's that's how we decide who we're keeping, what loans we take, what money we can afford to, and and you would want to financially. You you would have probably two objectives. One is to get 
through the Champions League group and into the big money stages. And, and two, I'm not certain that defending the cup would be anything other than your number three priority. Because while winning the title right now would be a leap um, for this squad, with re- retaining the right players, um, finding a right back, because Pacini can't defend. We saw Pacini that day at Leicester, you and I, and he looked lovely going forward. The season has proved that he's not a very good defender. And therefore, a defensive right back and probably... Um, I'm, not, I'm not certain how much more how many more elite seasons Garaya's got in him injury-wise. But at any rate, with, with the right confection, your, your, your goal at Valencia is to win the title. And it might take you two or three seasons, but there's an opportunity now for a side that's not Barcelona, Madrid or Atleti that there hasn't been, I don't think, probably since Sevilla were at their absolute peak or before that Valencia. Perfect. And a perfect way um, for us to end this look back on the Copa del Rey final. And I guess the La Liga season in general will be back very soon with um, a preview show and then a review show of the Champions League. But for now, Graham Hunter, thank you very much. Neil White, you'll never walk alone.